In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to look at the biblical basis for baptism in the Old Testament. And we'll do this by concentrating on the prayer that is used to unseal the baptismal font at the Easter Vigil. Stick around. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I am the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. Today, uh, we are going to start a, a series of episodes on the sacrament of baptism. So in the Diocese of Tyler in this year, we are still in the year of baptism. We had our Eucharistic Congress, which focused on um, catechetical sessions about baptism, um, but the year's not over yet. So what I'm basically going to be doing um, over the next uh, several episodes is offering a look at some biblical texts that help ground our understanding of baptism, and then think a little bit about the, the theological implications and meaning of baptism. So I think for a lot of Christians, a lot of Catholics, when you talk about baptism, um, it, we're real quick to jump into the idea that, like, baptism forgives our sins, you know, it makes us a son of God or a daughter of God, um, and of course that's true, uh, but that's uh, a, a theological way of understanding baptism, which is good, and we will talk about that. But there's a lot about the Bible and baptism that I think we don't tend to think very much about. And so that's what we're going to spend these first uh, couple of episodes on. So right now, uh, what I basically want to do is, is open up the discussion on baptism and in a special way point to the Old Testament. And it's not just because I like to do that, although I do have uh, a lot of uh, reasons that I personally like to do that. But actually, in the prayer of the baptismal font— which can happen in a baptism and also happens at the Easter Vigil, what happens is the Church offers this prayer to sort of unseal the baptismal font, and I think most people, when they hear that prayer, there's a lot of things going on, and they don't get to really soak in the richness of what those words are. And they really point us first to the Old Testament. So let's sort of jump in. Um, if you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the section that would be the most relevant to this discussion in this episode starts in paragraph 1217, uh, and it, it works through basically the prayer of the baptismal font that's proclaimed at the Easter Vigil. Um, so that's kind of how we're going to follow along. I'm not necessarily going to read through the catechism, but if you want a point of reference to go, start in 1217. Um, that's a good place. So uh, this is the prayer that we use at the font of baptism. So I'll just, I'll just read through the whole prayer, and then we'll kind of walk through in this episode the Old Testament allusions that are being made. So here's how the prayer begins. O God, who by invisible power accomplish a wondrous effect through sacramental signs, and who in many ways have prepared water, your creation, to show forth the grace of baptism, 
O God, whose spirit in the first moments of the world's creation hovered over the waters, so that the very substance of water would even then take to itself the power to sanctify. O God, who by the outpouring of the flood foreshadowed regeneration, so that from the mystery of one and the same element water would come, uh, from one and the same element of water would come an end to vice and a beginning of virtue. O God, who caused the children of Abraham to pass dry shod through the Red Sea, so that the chosen people set free from slavery to Pharaoh would prefigure the people of the baptized. O God, whose son, baptized by John in the waters of the Jordan, was anointed with the Holy Spirit, as he and as he hung upon the cross, gave forth water from his side along with blood, and after his resurrection commanded his disciples, Go forth, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Look now, we pray, upon the face of your church, and graciously unseal for us the fountain of baptism. May this water receive by the Holy Spirit, the grace of your only begotten Son, so that human nature, created in your image and washed clean through the sacrament of baptism from all the squalor of the life of old, may be found worthy to rise to the life of newborn children through water and the Holy Spirit. See, that prayer, as I read it, I was kind of looking at the timer, was it was about two minutes or so. And you, you literally could take almost a semester, if you wanted to, to go through just all of the meaning that's packed into that. And this is something that's actually very common um, in the church, in our liturgical celebrations, that we have these unbelievably superabundant, rich texts of prayers, and a lot of times we just got to get through them. Kids are running around, the air conditioning doesn't work at the church, and there's all sorts of chaos going on, and, and we don't necessarily always get the best chance to enter into them. So here's what I want to do is really point you through a few of the passages that are that are being referenced. So at the very beginning of the prayer, um, you have this reference to creation, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Um, and right at the moment of creation, you see this in the text of, of the Bible, the Scripture describes the presence of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Um, and this is one of the, the places we can look in the Old Testament where we can see so, so clearly how the Old Testament has its own appropriate meaning, but then we see abundantly what it means even beyond its obvious sense when we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is a spirit hovering over the water, right? And in the Old Testament, right at the beginning, we've got this link between spirit and water. And at the Easter Vigil and in the rite of baptism, the prayer that we have over the font points us back to that moment. So in other words, when at the Easter Vigil we're, we're praying for the unsealing of the baptismal font, or if it's in a baptism for some reason they need to, to do the prayer over the font, the reason that the words point us back to creation is because it's supposed to tell us something about what's about to take place. That means in a baptism, we are in a certain way experiencing a new moment of creation. All right? Um, so actually... The, the presence of water and spirit from creation, we can understand it, we can understand creation more when we know about baptism, and we can also understand baptism better when we understand this link to creation. They both enrich uh, each other, and this is why the Catechism says that in, in essence we need to understand the New Testament to understand the Old, and the Old to understand the New. Um, so baptism then we can see is a moment 
of creation. There's this great book, which for some reason I didn't bring to the studio with me, um, called The Bible and Baptism, and I'll put the information in the show notes below, uh, by a father, Isaac Morales, and and he, he explains it this way, that there's a link between the water and the spirit, which is somewhat obvious in the text, but it helps us to see baptism as a new creation. So he says this, out of the waters of creation appears the dry land, and from it the first life appears with various kinds of vegetation. The fertility of the waters reappears on the fifth day as God began, begins to fill the sea with inhabitants. So despite the initially menacing and chaotic appearance of the waters, under God's creative word, water becomes a source of life. So we can see right at the beginning of Revelation, at the beginning of the book of Genesis, our, you know, our, 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 our canon of Scripture— Water is linked to creation. Water has a certain fertility. But there's something really interesting about the imagery of water throughout the entire Old Testament, and that's that it, at one and the same time, is creative, it's fertile, it gives life. Out of the water come these the land, and the land is fertile, and then there are creatures in the water uh, because God's Word is linked to that water, and there's creative power there. So it gives life. But water is also destructive. And this this is what's happening in baptism, is we are creating new life, but we're also destroying the old life of sin. So I think a lot of Christians reflexively think about baptism as like, it's a good new beginning. And that's true. But it's also true that sin is being put to death. And this is even part of the ritual of baptism of, immersing someone in water, right? The waters of baptism were described by some of the church fathers as a tomb. And actually, if you look at ancient baptismal fonts, very, very old churches, their fonts of baptism, um, some of them were decorated on the outside like a tomb, or they had images of death, because what was happening in a baptism is you're putting the old life to death, and then you are rising up to new life through those creative waters. So water here and and all throughout the Old Testament is creative. It gives new life. It is So it's a source of good, and it's also dangerous and destructive, and it is a cause of death. It is both of those at the same time, and baptism really is both of those at the same time. So when we think about creation and baptism and this link between them, it helps us draw out the deeper meaning both of what's happening in Genesis and of the sacrament of baptism itself. So creation is one moment. You have this this prayer, you know, God who by invisible power accomplish a wondrous effect through sacramental signs and who in many ways have prepared water, your creation, to show forth the grace of baptism. I keep saying grace of baptism, and I don't know why. Um, but then it moves on, um, the, the prayer moves on to talk about the flood. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is is one place to look. But you can fast forward all the way to Genesis chapter 7 and 8, and the prayer at the font of baptism reflects on uh, the flood. So here's the, the words of the prayer that refer to the flood. O God, who by the outpouring of the flood foreshadowed regeneration, so that from the mystery of one and the same element of water would come an end to vice and the beginning of virtue. So there's this this mention of the flood, which is the the flood of Noah. So there's in that prayer, right, the end of vice and the beginning of virtue, 
again, what I just said a second ago, you see that water is destructive and constructive at the same time. So the flood then is a punishment, and that's real punishment. It's a punishment for sin, but it also is a source of hope. So there's death caused by the flood, but through that death, we see um, in the prayer and also in the text of the book of Genesis, chapter 7 through 8, a new beginning. So an end to vice and a beginning to virtue. Um, So the flood puts to death vice, but it also helps to provide a beginning for virtue. And you see this in the text. Noah's um, actions after the flood um, is to enter into worship, to build an altar and offer sacrifice. And this shows us something important that we water can purify and destroy, but it can only truly purify us if it leads us to worship. In other words, if the flood had happened and then Noah just carried on like it didn't matter, um, he would have missed the point. But he, he gets out of the boat and immediately begins to worship. So there's this link between the purification of water and the proper worship of God. And you see this also in baptism, right? A lot of times a baptism is carried out within the context of a mass. And so that the child is is baptized, and then the family and the community gathered around go to worship at the Eucharist. So there's this natural link between the purification, the putting to death of sin, the beginning of virtue through the purifying waters that are one at the same time, cause the destruction, and allow us the new beginning— the link from there into the proper worship of God. And so you actually see in chapter 8 of Genesis, after the flood subsides, you have um, the worship of God by, with Moses building an, an altar to offer sacrifice. But there's also a link, very obvious in the text, from Noah in the flood to creation, which is to help us understand that the waters of the flood are in many ways like the waters of a new creation. We already said baptism is like a new creation. The flood is, again, another instance of creation. So after the flood starts to subside, for instance, we see the image of a dove hovering over the water, and this is help, to, supposed to help us you know, connect to the Spirit hovering over the water just in Genesis chapter 1, but it also points us forward to the baptism of Jesus where the, hov- the dove is hovering over the waters. Um, we have the, the symbol of the dove, right? Um, so there's there's all of this packed in. And then if you look even more carefully at the, the discussion with Noah, you see um, almost parallel language to creation with the description of the different creatures that are that are present. Um, and so all of this is, again, pointing, pointing us to the fact that at creation, there's the water, and God's presence is, is somehow found there. It's, it's important, and it gives life. Um, but we also see the chaos and the destruction in both places. So, so this is like what, I, what, what, what we mean when we say a sacrament is a mystery. When you start really kind of peeling the layers back, you see all of these things packed in. And again, in a typical baptism or at the Easter Vigil Mass, I mean, a priest could read through these, this whole prayer in the space of one or two minutes, and it's very difficult to sort of catch it all as it's happening. Now, the big thing, the big moment of water being present in the Old Testament as an image of baptism is in the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. So if, if you go to Exodus chapter 14, you, you see this story told. Without any doubt, the Exodus is the image which gives the greatest shape to the story of the Israelites and their understanding of who Yahweh is, who the Lord is, 
and the way that he cares for them. So remember, prior to the Exodus, you have the Israelites enslaved, um, and Moses tried to intercede on their behalf with Pharaoh. He goes to them and try, he goes to Pharaoh and tries to get liberation for his people. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't want to co- cooperate. There's a bunch of uh, plagues that happen, and this all culminates in the Passover. The Passover ultimately is what facilitates the Exodus, but it's that Exodus and the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea more so than the Passover in some ways, that sort of sticks in the minds of the Israelites. Of course, they remember the Passover prior to the Exodus, but it's the Exodus that is sort of the glory of Israel, that they were able to receive liberation from Pharaoh. And, and at the hands of who? Moses. You know, this, this really not impressive figure on his own, but the Lord works through him. So for the Israelites, then, the crossing of the Red Sea, when you talk about that that moment of going through the Red Sea on dry land, becomes kind of their shorthand way of referring to just salvation history. So as the Israelites develop and they become more and more larger, more large and even more powerful under David's kingdom, Still, the way they tend to think of themselves and sort of remember them, their identity is forged in the Red Sea. It's, we're the people that the Lord set free from slavery through the crossing of the Red Sea, and we got to be freed from Pharaoh. So prior to the Exodus, right, the Israelites are enslaved after they're destined for freedom. And they arrive at this freedom, they achieve this freedom, not on their own, but because God allows them to pass through water. So you have slavery to freedom through the passing of water, by passing through the water, rather. And so these waters are then liberating, and there's a clear link to baptism for us also. But there's also a link to uh, the story of the flood. And there's some interesting back background details, too, um, to the story. So you have the waters of the, of, of the Nile are threatening. Remember, there's, there's water is dangerous and liberating at the same time, and it's, it's like this wrestling match between whether water is primarily a destructive or constructive force in the Old Testament. Um, you just keep going back and forth, and the Psalms show us this. Um, there's a lot of imagery of, of floods and drowning in the Psalms, um, but you know we can't go into to all of that. So when you think of Moses' story, right, He's supposed to have been thrown into the waters of the Nile, where the Hebrew children were supposed to be thrown to drown. Um, And he is put into the water, but he's not thrown into the water. Um, He's put into the water, and and it doesn't kill him. It actually leads him into the royal household, and his mother is involved. And Moses is uh, saved in a certain way through that water that was supposed to destroy him. And then the Israelites are freed through the water, and then the same water— the Red Sea, destroys Pharaoh and all of his chariots and charioteers. One more in- really interesting fact uh, about this, this Moses story that I don't want, don't want to forget. In Hebrew, the word for the basket that Moses is put into, which ultimately saves him you know, going through the water, is Teba. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's T-E-B-A-H. And there's only one other time in the Bible when this word um, in Hebrew is used, and it is with the Ark of Noah. So if you were reading the Old Testament in Hebrew, if you're reading Genesis in Hebrew, you'd see Noah has a Teba that saves him from the destructive waters of the flood, and Moses has one that saves him from the the death-dealing waters of the Nile that were supposed to kill him. And then later, he walks through the sea um, uh, on, on dry land. 
So finally, uh, when we in terms of talking about the crossing of the Red Sea, there's a, there's a link between the crossing of the Red Sea and the worship of God. And remember, when Noah has the flood and the sea, the, the, the flood subsides, the first thing that he does is worship God. The Israelites, actually, after they cross the Red Sea, they are called to celebrate the Sabbath. Um, and there's, there's a sense in which there's a Sabbath and a new creation tied in with this liberation from the Red Sea. Um, so, for instance, you see darkness and light and the presence of a strong wind at creation. You see them also in the Exodus. There is a theme of darkness and light and a strong wind. Um, there is the presence of dry land at creation, of course, which rises out of uh, the waters of creation. Um, and, of course, in the crossing of the Red Sea, there is dry land that sort of appears that the Israelites are able to, to cross on. And there is a Sabbath rest. So this is really interesting. After creation is completed, we have the waters of creation, God's Spirit, remember, God rests on the seventh day and makes it holy. This is in Genesis chapter 2. After the Israelites cross the Red Sea, they celebrate the Sabbath even though the Sabbath had not yet been revealed as a commandment. So check out Exodus chapter 16, verses 22 to 26. You'll see this. So there's a new creation and a new Sabbath happening in the, the liberation. There's a lot more that, that we could say about that, um, but, it's, but it's packed in, um, you know, all, all in this, this brief prayer. You see all of this sort of packed in. Um, lastly, I'll just, just mention real briefly the entrance into the promised land is also very, very important. So the liberation from slavery is actually just the beginning of God working this miracle of saving the Israelites. He wants to take them from the slavery in Egypt, not just into freedom, but into the promised land. And of course, this doesn't happen until much later in uh, the book of Joshua. Um, so after you finally get to the book of Joshua, you have the crossing of the Jordan, um, crossing the Jordan River into the promised land. And what you see there, again, is a very close parallel between the way the crossing of the Red Sea is described and the crossing of the Jordan. So it's almost like the crossing of the Jordan into the promised land is another exodus, a new exodus out of the, the, the wandering in the desert and into the inheritance of the promised land. So you have this theme of sanctification, for instance. Moses tells the people to sanctify themselves before God revealed his power um, prior to uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. And he does the same—well, Joshua tells the Israelites the same, team, the same thing to sanctify themselves before the ark is processed before them when they're going to enter into the promised land. You have the presence of God um, as in pillar and cloud in the crossing of the Red Sea and the, his presence in the ark in the crossing of the Jordan. You have the, the demonstration and the description of God's power. There's a parting of waters in both places. There's the presence of dry land. The motif is present in both places. And there's liturgy. After the crossing of the Red Sea, the Israelites celebrate the Sabbath. After the crossing into the Jordan, the Israelites celebrate circumcision and Passover. So this is a lot to pack in, even to a 23, 25-minute, whatever, however long this is going to be, uh, episode, which demonstrates, again, just how greatly compressed this prayer of the font of baptism is. And it's one of the reasons why, if you get a chance to study the text of a liturgy, the text of a sacrament, 
it can so enhance your experience of that when you get to attend one or when you're receiving a sacrament, because all of this is just littered throughout, and sometimes we just don't have the, the space to see it. So to, to sum up just, you know, really briefly this tour of the Old Testament, what we can say is that at one and the same time, water in the Old Testament is a source of life. We see this in the creation. It's a source of death. We see that in the flood. But above all, it is a source of redemption. The redemption of the people of Israel in the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea and the entrance into the Promised Land. And that same theme, of course, is present for us in the sacrament of baptism. So again, this is why we need to know our Old Testament if we want to understand the rest of Catholicism very well. Um, But that's not all, so stick around for our episode on the New Testament. Thanks. Thanks.